Book of Romans is a great, it, it's a great book. If, um, if you look at the layout of the books in the Bible, and I, and I believe they have, I believe there's import to how those books are ordered uh, in, in terms of their sequence. In other words, I don't think that, that it's just thrown in there and it means nothing. For instance, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get four glimpses, four looks at the Lord Jesus Christ with four different purposes. For instance, Matthew, as you know, is a Jewish book. We see Christ as the Jewish Messiah, the promised Messiah for Israel, all the Old Testament, all those prophecies uh, culminate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the body that casts the shadow in the Old Testament, so to speak. Colossians tells us that. And so Christ is the one that Israel's looking for. Matthew is an awesome, wonderful book. But Mark is a little different. Mark is to the point. Your pastor preached through Mark in the early days here. And the words like straightway are important in that book. And it's a, a book about a servant. Seeing Christ as a servant, there's no genealogy there because it doesn't matter about who a, a, a servant came from. His ancestors are not important. He's there to serve. So that's, that's interesting. Luke is about Christ as the Son of Man. It is the longest book in the New Testament. It's the, it is the most uh, e- emotional uh, book in a sense. That may, may not be the right way to put it. But there's more... Um, it's rich because you see Christ as a human you see Christ as, as the Son of Man, and you see the emphasis on His ministry to people in the book of Luke, and how He loved people and the people of the world. And, and I'm going to tell you something. He loves sinners. Amen. And we live in such a crazy world. We're so mad at the Fox News every night and, and all the things in the news. We're not careful. We'll forget that He still loves sinners. And that's what Luke is about, how great it is. And then we get to John, and that's a, a gospel that is written a little, it's a little different than the others. And it shows Christ as the, in his deity. And okay, so you get the idea. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's about Christ. And then we get to the book of Acts. And Acts is a history book that tells us about the foundation of the New Testament church and how it was laid and how it was, how it grew and how it spread. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a history book. So... We get to the end of the book of Acts, and, and Acts is sort of, uh, as we say in Alabama, cut off like a stick of bologna. Amen? Some of y'all never even seen a stick of bologna. They don't come in slices. <laughs> it doesn't come in slices. So anyway, you get a lot of deep stuff when you hear me preach, I'm telling you. Bologna. Amen? So the book of Acts has no formal ending to it. It's just, it ends with Paul in house arrest, preaching and teaching things concerning the kingdom of God. The reason I think that is, is because the history is still going, right? It's not over. We're still making that history. So, the book of Acts ends, and thus, it then comes the very next book, Romans. And I think that it's noteworthy that that is the first doctrinal book written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the New Testament. And it's written to Romans. Rome being the capital city of the Gentile world. And the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel of Christ. It begins and ends with a great emphasis on the gospel. And and everything in between is an explanation. It is an elaboration. Uh, it's 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 a dissertation on the gospel and how the gospel applies to our lives. It's a It's an amazing thing to read the book of Romans and begin to take those doctrines into your heart. Romans chapter 1, 2, 3 talks about the sinfulness of man. How that man is completely, utterly sinful and can do nothing to save himself. 
culture and civilization is all is a mess and everything man's ever touched has been bad and man is worthy of death and and all men are sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God right there's a pivotal pivotal therefore in chapter 3 and verse 28 that says therefore we conclude that man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith that's not an exact quote but that's that's the idea so the emphasis in the book shifts there at the end of chapter 3, and we begin to focus on the message of the book, justification by faith. Justification. That's when guilt is removed. When someone is justified, the guilt that was there has been removed. There's no more guilt. They're not guilty anymore. They're justified. Right? So that's uh, chapter 4, and then chapter 5, we hear, therefore, another pivotal therefore, therefore being justified... By faith, we have peace with God. So then we begin to look at what a believer possesses and experiences, what is his as a believer. It's a wonderful truth in Romans chapter 5. We read about, uh, and I like this, it says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. I believe that is saying that not only does God take care of us in a judicial sense, uh, not only are we, are we declared righteous, in a legal sense, what I'm trying to say, but we are also, God also provides for the emotional component of the believer's life. And it's great to be able to, in a sense, feel the love of God. That's a good thing. And then it tells us that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And I'm glad to know that there's enough grace to save any sinner. I believe that. I believe that God can and will save any sinner who will repent. So then we get to Romans chapter 6. And you've got to keep in mind who Paul is and all of his history as a Jew and all the different groups of people that are going to be influenced by what he's writing here. And so he writes almost as if he is anticipating an objection. Maybe he's actually grappling with the objection. But the idea of the legalist is this, or the objection of the legalist in this passage is, wait a minute, are you suggesting that since we're just saved by the grace of God and it has nothing to do with what we can do, why don't we just live in sin? So the more sin we commit, then the more grace God can bestow and the more glory He gets. Everybody knows that's wrong thinking, but that's what Paul is addressing. And that would be the legalist objection to this. Whereas you have the more the licentious people on the other side who are suggesting that because you're Christians, because you're saved, you can live any way you want to live. We all know that's not so. We Baptists are often criticized because we believe in what they call once saved, always saved. I do believe that, by the way. I do believe in eternal security, but it is very misrepresented. I don't know any Bible-believing Baptist who knows enough Bible to blow the fuzz off a peanut who thinks that somebody just gets saved. That just simply means now they're not going to hell. There's no change in their life. There's no difference in them. There, there's no change in their affections and in their attitudes and their hopes and in their dreams and in the things that might grieve them and set them back that they're just simply not going to hell anymore. I don't know anybody who believes that who believes the Bible. That's a pretty common assertion. By people who don't understand it. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
Paul didn't waste any time here trying to warm up his listener with that question. He just said, no. No, God forbid, in the strongest possible sense. And then he began to defend his position. Here's what I'm thinking about this morning. And that is that there is a difference between victory and defeat in a believer's life. There's a difference. And I think a lot of Christians, all of us at times, are victimized by our own flesh and our own failure and our own sin. And if we're not careful, we'll just get down in that sin and wallow in it. And that is not the place for the believer. A defeated life is not the inheritance of the believer. That's what I want to get across. And that there is a big difference between victory and defeat. I know that sounds like an obvious statement, but if there is a big difference between victory and defeat, why are so many believers living as if there's not? There are some struggles in life that are struggles. The Bible says rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. There's some people in life that you shouldn't tell have a nice day. You should get down there and weep with them. They don't need to hear you say there are other fish in the sea. They need you to bear their burden. But on the other hand, there's a lot of Christians in the churches we preach in, the churches I pastor, probably not this one, but definitely in mine. There's a lot of people who are saved and have been saved for years and years and years and years. And they're victimized by things that ought to never be a part of a believer's life. Amen. There's a big difference between a wedding day and the day you sign the divorce papers. Isn't there? The difference there. There's such a huge difference in the day you bring a baby home from the hospital. I'll never forget the first day we took Kelsey home. Kelsey was born two weeks late. And I remember going to that neonative, uh, neonative, <laughs> or something. <laughs> Whatever that thing was, neonatal intensive care. <laughs> I remember going in there and all those little bitty babies. What do you call them? I don't want to say it. It might, it might be a bad word. Preemies? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's, what I should say in church or not. I'm from Alabama. You got all these little bitty babies in there. Man, it was amazing. Little bitty, some of them just right there. And then there was Kelsey, born two weeks late. She looked like an octopus in that thing. With legs, <laughs> arms hanging, hanging out of that crib. <laughs> and I, I, was work, I was working in Chicago as a security officer, and it was about an hour away where the hospital was. And I'd get off work, drive down there as fast as I could, you know, scrub up and put on the mask and put on the, you know, the gloves and everything. Go in there and they'd take her out of the little... I don't know, is incubator the right word? <laughs> That's what it looked like. Like we chickens in. But anyway, they'd take her out and I'd feed her and we'd put her back in there. Boy, when we took her home, that was a great day. There's a big difference in the day that you take a baby home from the hospital and the day that a parent sits and says, What did I do wrong? What do we do here? What how do we mess this up? How do we lose our kids? What happened? There's a big difference between 
getting a promotion down at the job and going home and saying, well, honey, I got a promotion. We got this much more money coming in every week, and here's the bonus check, and do whatever you want to do with it. Big difference between that and uh, prison. I think I told you guys years ago, I came here and preached right after my brother went to prison. Any of y'all remember that? Remember that? What a, and I told you about it, and y'all looked at me like, why is he telling us his personal business? <laughs> we don't want to hear that. It's, it's awkward. It's brutal. He's out. He got out just a few weeks ago. He got a job the second week he was out. He sold like eight cars in a week and a half. He's in church. He's wearing normal clothes. He's eating McDonald's. You know what I mean? He's drinking real coffee. It's all, it's all downhill from here. It's all a blessing. He's excited. He's doing well. His family's doing well. His wife's doing well. You talk about a miracle. Five and a half years of that stuff. Now, there's a big difference between when we do right and we receive the blessing and when we blow it. And we have to endure the, the negative consequences, right? We could go on about that all day. There's a difference between transgression and triumph in our lives. What is sin? Hold your place in, in Romans 6. Go to 1 John chapter 3. I, I told you that about my brother because I felt I, was, I owed you that much. Oh, I negged you out the last time. and I also want you to know that I don't know how messed up your life is. But if you will repent and seek the Lord, He's got enough grace to fix things you never thought could be fixed. He can turn things around you never dreamed would be turned around. And that's a good news. Amen. That's a good word. In other words, that's good news to know that. All right. You may not have to get a divorce. Okay. First John 3. You might want to keep thinking about it, but that's between you and the Lord. First John 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Not the verse I wanted. Hold on. <laughs> verse 4. It's a good verse, but not the verse I wanted. Verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. That defines sin for us. Sin is when we transgress, when we break God's law, when we cross that line, when we do things we're not supposed to do, don't do things we ought to do. That's sin, right? And notice that the, your King James Bible says, committeth sin. Now, a lot of people, Bible correctors we call them, change that word commit and make it read practice. I want you to understand as we talk about victory over sin and as we talk about sanctification in the next few minutes that I do not believe that because you're saved, you're never going to struggle with sin. I do not believe that just because you're saved, that means you can't do really bad things. Not suggesting that. I am not saying that just because you're saved... That means you'll never have any habits that whip you. Because the Bible tells us to lay aside the sin and the weight which doth so easily beset us. Temptation is when we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. Which means that in us is a, is a desire for things. And it's something we're always going to have to do. We have a mutual friend, uh, Pastor Alter and I, that's, that looks at it this way. Or he describes it this way. It's like shaving. If you're, if you're right with the Lord... You can keep some of your problems from showing. But they're always there. And if you let it go, if you let your spiritual life down, and if you, and, and if you, if you ease up in your commitment to the spiritual disciplines, exercise yourself in the godliness, right? If you let up, change your spiritual diet, so to speak, 
you'll go back to those problems. So don't think I'm saying... This passage says, is defining sin. It's not saying that a real Christian will never struggle with the practice of sin. I don't believe that's true. What it does say, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. In other words, you don't have to commit the same sin a hundred times in a row every day for a year. Or that'd be 365 days in a row, right? You don't have to do that every, every day for a year for it to be sin. One time it's a sin. When you transgress the law, you commit sin one time. That's the idea. Now, the Bible says that every man is enticed when he is drawn away of his... Or every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then it says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. So another thing we notice about sin is that we sin because of our lusts. We, we like it. We want to sin. Now that sounds contradictory to what I said earlier. I think that believers don't want to sin. Well, that part of you that's born again doesn't want to sin. The same passage we just read said, He that is born of God doth not commit sin. But it's our flesh that likes sin. It's our flesh that wants to gossip. It's our flesh that enjoys lust. It's our flesh that likes sin. And when that is left unchecked, we get into trouble. So we go back to Romans chapter 6 now. And let's move fast and be done here in just a few minutes. Let's try to understand a few basics for victory over sin. Now, if I came to this church with the goal in mind of telling you something you didn't already know, I would lose my mind. Because you have a, an excellent, excellent Bible preaching pastor. Just maybe the best I know anywhere. And uh, I told my dad the other day, I said, Jim Alter is the smartest man in, in the... He's the smartest independent Baptist in the world. Now, there's no doubt about that. It's not saying a lot because a lot of dumb independent Baptists, but... <laughs> very smart. Very smart. I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you what I think of your pastor. I think... And, you know, most of the world doesn't recognize us much because we're not a big, powerful denomination, right? We're, just, we're not. We don't operate that way. But if we, if we were and we needed someone to represent us, say somebody had to go on O'Reilly and talk for our, on our behalf, there's no other choice but Jim Alter. He's the man to do it. He didn't, even have to, he didn't even have to prepare. He can rip them in half. No doubt about that. So preaching here <laughs> is not fun. I'm kidding. It's great. But you understand, what I'm preaching about are things you probably already know. But that's a lot of what preaching is. We're looking at the Bible. And we're reminding ourselves this morning of our own struggle with sin. And sometimes you need somebody to remind you that you don't have to sin. You don't have to. You don't have to be defeated. You don't have to be whipped. You do not have to be underneath it all the time. So here's a few points about it. Number one, a life of sin is not a possible option for a child of God. Now look at verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Now, let me say this. You would almost need to preach through the entire book of Romans to avoid apparent contradictions on this subject. Okay? It would take a lot of explanation. I do not believe, and the Scripture doesn't teach, that just because you're saved, you will not struggle. On the other hand, in no way do I believe in a kind of conversion that doesn't change the life. Does that make sense? And so there's some tension between those two subjects and you have to wrestle with them. There's not any verse in the Bible that gives you a quick formula how to know you're saved. 
We try to make that up, but it doesn't. How to, how to be saved, yes. But how to know it, read 1 John sometimes and just go through there. It gives you these birthmarks, if you will, of a genuine believer. And you have to look at your heart, examine yourself, whether you be of the faith, make your calling and election sure. Amen? That's what you have to do. All right? And uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin? If my wife gets mad at us, she'll say, You are dead to me. Right? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Point number one, a life of sin is not a possible option for a child of God. When somebody tells me this is a Christian who has lived a lifestyle of immorality for decades, but he claims that he's saved, I just got to say, I doubt that. Now, I'm not his judge, but the Scripture tells us that we should treat him like he's lost, even if he's not. That's what the Bible says when it says, treat him as a heathen. Are you all with me? That's church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. With such a one, know not to eat. You treat them like they're lost. They're going to act like they're lost. You treat them like they're lost. I don't believe you do that over everything. You know how we independent Baptists are. We can make an issue out of wire rim glasses. Uh, It's unbelievable the stuff that guys will argue about and be really exercised about it. I can't be bothered by all of your hang-ups. But First John, I mean, First Corinthians five makes it clear that there are certain kinds of sin, certain kinds of lifestyles that bring reproach upon the church and cannot and should not be tolerated. And if they will not be corrected in those matters, the church has not only the right but the responsibility to put them out and to treat them as a heathen because the reputation of the church and ultimately the Lord. See, see how that works. So we bring that back here and we understand. That life and death are incompatible. For five chapters, we have Romans 1 through 5 demonstrating for us man's sin and his need for and his access to the justification that we have by faith. Where the guilt is removed. Romans 6 through 8 then discusses the sanctification of the believer. Romans 1 through 5, we've got the sin and then the salvation, if you will, the justification of the believer. Justification is defined a lot of ways. You've heard people say that it is uh, to justify is to declare the believer in Jesus righteous. You know, it would be an illustration sort of like in a, an accounting ledger where you'd have the, my name on the top of one ledger and Christ's name on the top of the other. Under my name, you have my sin. Under Christ's name, you have perfect righteousness. And so when I repent and I'm placed into Christ, I'm identified with Christ. So that when you see my name, you see Christ's righteousness, not my sin. That's justification. That is a legal, that is an an, an illegal act. It's, it's, I forget the word, but you get, get the understanding. It's just that legal change right there. Happens in an instant, it changed the record. I'm declared righteous. Everybody believes that, that we associate with, okay? But the problem kicks in in Romans 6 because 
Not only does the Lord justify, but He also sanctifies. And He doesn't justify anyone that He does not sanctify. Whereas justification is that work that happens judicially or legally rather in the believer's life and in concerning his record instantly, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. See how that works? It's done. I am justified. Sanctification, on the other hand, is the ongoing work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. Justification removes the guilt. It's gone. Like that old song, gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. You know, buried in the deepest sea. And I don't remember the rest of it, but that's it. Sanctification, the ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Justification and sanctification cannot be severed. Let me put it this way. If I said to you that justification is a gift of God, where He declares the believer in Jesus righteous, and the guilt is removed. He's accepted in the beloved. You'd say, Amen. That's a great gift. Well, not only is justification the gift of God, but sanctification is the gift of God. Holiness. The Lord doesn't save anyone that He does not also make holy. The Bible says without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, Right? All right, let's move a little further. Let's make sure we've got this down. Matthew 121 says that thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Right? Second Corinthians says, 517, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, all things are passed away, and all things will become new. And, and the, the Bible terminology talks about being passed from death unto life. These are major changes. Jesus said, I'm, not, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. These are things that should, not, not should, that do facilitate change in a believer's life. Let me say it this way. It is not impermissible for a believer to live in sin. It's impossible for a believer to live in sin. That's a strong statement. Let me qualify it. It is impossible for them to do that without God addressing it with chastisement and so forth. Does that, does that make sense? So it, it's still, it's a correct statement. God will not leave a believer to live in sin and dishonor who he is and work against everything that he's doing without addressing that. Second thing, we said, what do we say? First of all, a life of sin is not a possible option for a child of God. I'm not saying that a Christian is not going to make bad decisions or that you young people can't make horrible, life-altering blunders. You can. Things that you'll never get over. Things that you'll never get past. I mean, the Lord will help you and you can move past it, but it's always there. You can cause yourself trouble as a young person that will always be with you till you die. It's very important to understand that. So that can happen. You can, you can allow sin into your life as a believer, not just young people. Last time I checked, it's adults getting in a lot of trouble. It's sin is it's a problem we all struggle with. So... 
understand that we can get into that problem of sin. But it's not possible to be a believer and wallow in that, in that sin as your life choice. And there'd be no repercussion. There'd be no work of God. There'd be no challenge of the Spirit in your life. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Scripture teaches that. Let's go back to the text. Look at verse 2. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Second thing I want to say is our union with Christ demands this victory over sin. This we that we find here in verse uh, 2, it is a continuation. It's continuing the discussion of justification that we find in the previous chapters. How shall we that are dead to sin continue any longer therein? Now, folks, let me, let me make sure you understand something. I'm not suggesting anything but that after you get saved, your life has changed. And that you don't have to sin. I'm not suggesting... Okay, all right, let's do it this way. Raise your hand if before you got saved, you had a bad temper. Anybody like that? Okay, put it down. Raise your hand if you've let that get away from you since you got saved. Get, put them all back up, every one of you. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm not, don't, 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 get, don't let me mislead you or, or be unclear. I do not believe uh, in, in sinless perfection at all. I do not believe that when you get saved, you don't struggle anymore. I think I've said that. What I am saying is, however, there's no such thing as salvation that doesn't change a person's life. And that's important. If you think, well, I believe I'm saved because I've, I've always believed in God and we've always had this, you know, me and Jesus got our own thing going. And there was never a moment where you turned to Christ in faith to save you from your sins. Then you need to examine yourselves. You need to examine who you are and if you have indeed been born again. Jesus used the kind of terminology that requires a moment where you have turned to Him in saving faith to save you from your sins. It's not a gradual thing. The birth of a believer is the miracle of a moment. The making of a disciple is the project of a lifetime. But becoming a child of God is the result of repentance and faith. And that happens just like that. But after it happens, then starts the struggle between the new you and the old you. And my only message this morning is that you don't have to lose that struggle as often as we do. All right? Our union with Christ demands this victory over sin. Dead to sin. Now, that's a phrase that we have a tendency to just read past that and assume things. All right? But look at it. Uh, verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, when the Bible says here that we are dead to sin... It is not suggesting that we are dead to sin in the sense that it loses its allure. There's sometimes it is really fun to tell people off. When everything in your purse is saying, don't do it. You ever had those moments? Don't say it. Let it go. But your flesh can't let it go. That's just the struggle with sin. That's the struggle with who we are. 
So if we're dead to sin, why do we still have that struggle? Well, let me see if I can answer that. I think it's simple. Dead to sin, it means that we are dead to sin's guilt. Because we're identified with Christ. The idea is we are seen by God as having died with Christ because we're baptized into Christ, which we'll explain. We're buried with, baptized into Christ means we died with Him, buried with Him. We're risen with Him to walk in newness of life. That's the idea. And so when it says we're dead to sin, it means that we're no longer guilty sinners. We're no longer categorized as sinners in that sense. We are saints. We're child, children of God. We've been made alive. Now, why would we then go on and live in sin? It doesn't make any sense. And if we are identified with Christ in death, we are also identified with Christ in His resurrection. They go together. Maybe you're thinking, well, man, I, 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 th- I know I'm saved, but I sure have trouble with this and that and the other, and I try and I try. Well, the fact that you're trying could very well mean that you're on the right side of this subject. Amen. The fact that you're struggling with sin and you're learning and you're wanting to be a better Christian and you're grieved in your heart and you feel and experience those emotions of guilt over sin and failure, and that's a good thing. But what I want you to know is that you can win. We all have the battle. We all have the struggle. But you can win. All right? This union that we have, being baptized into Jesus, it, uh, as we just said, it identifies us with His death. If we had time, we could go over to Matthew chapter 3, and I'm almost positive that's the first mention of baptized in the Bible, I think. But I'm not, I'm not sure of that. But it gives you... The idea of baptize, it means what it suggests. Okay? It means immerse, just like in that passage it talks about the, uh, the chaff being thrown into the fire of judgment. Now that's a, that, that, it goes into the fire. Does that make sense? When you're baptized in water, you go into the water. So if we're baptized into Christ, that means we are placed into Christ. That means we are identified with His death. So what all that Jesus did on the cross is as if we did it in that sense. In other words, it's on our account. It's on our record. So that part's taken care of. Substitution is the key word for the Romans 1 through 5. Identification is the key word for Romans 6 through 8. We already know that Christ died for us and we got saved. Now we need to start to understand as a believer that we're identified with Christ. That life that He lives, we should live. That's the idea. Justification in those first few chapters. Sanctification in, in, the, in the chapters we're looking at here, 6 and 7 and 8. The word impute is a good key word for Romans 1 through 5. To impute means to lay to one's account. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not sin. There is no more sin going on my record. You understand that? When I see, when I sin, it's a problem, but it's not going on my record. I'm not going to stand before Jesus and be judged for my sins. He died for my sins. He paid for that. You got that? You do get that, or agree with that, I'm saying. All right, so uh, impute. The sin's not going to be imputed to my account anymore. I'm going to be judged for the work that I do for Christ. And you can check that out. It doesn't say works plural. It says works singular. 
1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 5. Now let's go back to the subject. If impute is the key word for Romans 1 through 5, impart is the key word for Romans 6 through 8. If I'm truly born again and Christ lives in me, doesn't it make sense that He would impart to me that life? So do we have to lose our temper? Do we have to be miserable people? Do we have to be hard to live with? Do we have to make it all about us? Do we have to lust? Did you know a Christian young man can like girls without being filthy? Did you know that? You don't have to live that way. We don't have to be... You know, some depressions are physical. You ought to go to the doctor. But those depressions that we cause because we are not living well and we have bad habits and all of that, we can handle that. We don't have to be defeated by that all the time. That's kind of the idea. We are delivered from the principle of sin when we're justified. We're delivered from the power of sin as we're sanctified. So let's look at this uh, last point here and we're done. Therefore, if it's true that... um, And how do we say it? A life of sin is not a possible option for a child of God. Number two, our union with Christ demands this victory over sin. Then number three, therefore, examine yourself carefully. Now, I've heard people say my whole life, I've heard preachers preach against talking people out of their salvation. And I would agree with that. I've I've been in meetings where they're they're sensational to the extreme and they're attempting to get conversions or get decisions or have results. So they paint this picture where you've ever struggled with sin, you're probably not saved. And they'll drag that out. I'm against that. I don't agree with that. But I also don't agree with talking people into thinking they're saved when they're not. So you have to examine yourself. If you have any doubts about your salvation, if you have any genuine doubts, I didn't say if you doubted yourself. I didn't say if you doubted your own spirituality. I'm not that spiritual. I'm not nearly as strong as I think I should be after pastoring 20 years and preaching over 30. I feel like I should be a lot stronger. I'm getting weaker by the day. That's life. I have a little more wisdom, so I don't overreact as much as I used to. You follow me? We're, we're all struggling. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you're human. But if you are sitting here this morning thinking, you know what, I'm religious and I go to church. I don't know for sure if I've got this saved thing. You've got to get that settled. You've got to get that taken care of. Let's close with Hebrews chapter 12. Now let me ask you to be lenient with me on a passage like that. It's a lot harder to try to work through than just, you know, three points in a poem kind of a sermon. It's kind of complicated material. So I thought preaching is supposed to give answers. Preaching can't give all the answers. Sometimes preaching plants important questions. And the idea is very simple. If you're genuinely born again, the same God who justifies the, the, the sinner and makes him righteous has also promised to sanctify that believer and work in his life. If the Spirit of God is not living in you and working in you, then you're not saved. Philippians 1.6 says, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. 
For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Great passage that explains that in a child of God's life, there's going to be chastening. There's going to be correction from God. So as we close, do not think for a second that I'm implying that if there's a struggle in your Christian life, you're not saved. No, 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 no. There will almost always be a struggle if you're spiritually interested. If you have any desire to be something for the Lord, Romans 7 will make that clear. And as you live for God, you're going to make mistakes. And sometimes we get determined in our mistakes. We get bullheaded in our wrong thinking. And God brings in corrective chastisement. Amen. Amen? And that's not pleasant at the moment. But it yields something in our lives that's very pleasant and very wonderful. I like the word, if ye endure chastening. You know, the Bible says they, they that live godly in Christ Jesus um, will suffer persecution. And the verse before that talks about enduring persecutions and afflictions. And that the idea is that a genuine believer, when he's persecuted, he's not going to uh, give up his faith because he's persecuted. He's going to endure faithfully when he's persecuted. He'll experience the grace of God in that persecution. And that's the same thing when we come here to Hebrews. We understand that when God brings chastisement into the life of his children, that's not going to blow them out. They're going to endure that chastening and they're going to accept God's correction in their lives and they're going to be better because of it. So there's where you have to compare. You have to look at your own life and examine yourself and say, do I have these workings going on in my life? Do Do I believe that I'm saved? I know that God works and He's changing me and He's rebuking me and He's chastising me. And He's helping me. Those are good things. If on the other hand you're here this morning. And you're thinking I don't know about all that. I believe in God but. As far as God working in my life. And there being any kind of a change. I, I don't feel it. Maybe there's someone here. And you're right the opposite of that. Maybe in your heart you're thinking. I'm not ready to meet God. I don't have this confidence. That Christ lives in me. Let me encourage you to come to Christ. Nobody at this church would try to jam anything down your throat. There are people here who would help you like a friend and a, and a, and a, and a loving person find the truth about Christ. They would do that. So let me encourage you to come to, to, the, to the leadership here. Get help if you don't know for sure that you're saved. If you do know for sure that you're saved and you're struggling in your life, can I just tell you something? It'll be all right. If you want to be right, it'll be all right. The Lord will help you with that struggle. And we'll talk about a little more of how to get through that struggle with sin in our lives tonight. Let's bow our heads this morning.